All right, well, would you join me in uh, turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5? And last Sunday, I began uh, to teach on Mark chapter 5, and we looked at uh, Jesus and demons, part one, and we really only got started in Mark chapter 5. We didn't dive too deep into the text itself. We kind of gave you an overview, some foundational things that we thought would be helpful uh, for the, this sermon, which will actually dive into the text. We laid a lot of foundation last week. We're going to dive in now, we'll look at the, ver- the whole section of these 20 verses about Jesus' encounter with a demoniac, Jesus' encounter with a man possessed by demons. No, we didn't do this series because it was Halloween yesterday. This is, it just happened to land on these Sundays. Um, and, and we have the opportunity to just look at God's Word. And again, here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're seeing is that Jesus has all authority. We saw this a couple weeks ago with Jesus' authority over nature itself. And we're going to see this again with Jesus' authority over the spirit realm. Uh, if you remember last week, if you recall, uh, we had eight truths that we kind of mined out of Scripture to help us start creating a worldview that is more aligned with Scripture about what is going on in this unseen world, unseen realm that we know exists, and yet so often we act as if it doesn't. Uh, let me remind you of what those eight truths were. One, demons are powerful. Two, they are numerous. Three, they are influential. Four, they are destructive. Five, they interact with humans. Six, they hate Christians. Seven, Jesus has all authority over them. And one day, number eight, Jesus will judge them. So we need to have a worldview that makes space to believe in these things. As, as odd as it might sound, living in a world that's so modern, it hardly has any space for the spirit realm. Uh, we want to make sure that we have a biblical worldview. And so we've uh, we got to make sure Scripture is informing our every idea. Uh, let's go back to Mark chapter 5 now. I'm going to read the text again in its entirety. I'm going to ask you to read along with me, and then we're going to unpack it. Now, trust that as we do, you're going to see things that you didn't see before. You're going to be encouraged by our Lord again, and I think you're going to be armed to be able to face whatever evil the world has to throw at you because we're going to understand that Jesus has authority over evil itself. All right, we're in chapter 5. We there? Verse 1. Let's read. They, those are the disciples of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, 
rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came and and they came to, to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened in the, to, to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with them, with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. It's amazing and bizarre text, isn't it? This is a text that we read, and and there's so many questions that just spring into our minds as we, we read this thing. And yet there's so much to learn. I, I'm going to break the text up into four parts, okay? So these are going to be the headings that help us understand what's going on in the text. One, we're going to look at the mission. Two, we're going to look at the maniac. Yes, they all start with the letter M. Uh, three, the meeting. And four, the marvel. Let's start with the mission. Start with the mission. Look at verse 1, and we're going to see something uh, that you maybe didn't notice before, maybe didn't think about before. There in verse 1, it says, They came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. Stop right there. The country of the Gerasenes. If you remember, they were on the sea the night before. Uh, This probably would have been a one to two hour trip from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, except for there was a storm. And so that probably took a bit longer and judging by some of the events that happen, we know that the sun's probably risen, at least to the point where there's some visibility. It's not the middle of the night, even though they set out uh, the night before in the evening, it says. We know that they had to be able to have some vision because they saw the guy coming. The guy saw Jesus coming, so there's some visual uh, factors going on here. And here's what it says. They went to the country of the Gerasenes. You know anything about the Gerasenes? Uh, sometimes we read geographical details and we think nothing of it and we just pass on by thinking that they have no relevance to the story. It's just an incidental detail, except for the fact that this is not the case in this. This is actually an important piece to understand. They went to the Gerasenes. In Matthew, it's called the Gatherings, and some people say, well, they're contradicting each other. Actually, they're not. Both uh, Gesara and Gadara are parts of the same region of the Decapolis is where they are. In verse 20, you see that. This is the same region, and they come across to this region that is described here as the region or the country of the Gerasenes. Let me tell you a little bit about this area. It's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You notice what was on the hillside there? Pigs, thousands of them. Would Jews have harvested pigs? No, they would not have. Uh, That was not kosher. They would not have done that. The law did not allow them to eat uh, the meat of pigs. And so this would not have been a Jewish area. The Decapolis, actually, was taken over in the 4th century B.C. by Alexander the Great. It was settled by the Greeks, and Greco-Roman religion was prominent in this area. This was not a place where the Jews uh, had deep roots. This was not a place where the Hebrew teachings or the Hebrew scriptures would have had much, teach, or much depth there. Rather, this was a place where Greco-Roman paganism was prominent. Um, 
one thing we know when we read the New Testament, uh, that behind paganism, behind idolatry, Paul makes it really clear what's behind idols? Demons. Okay? Uh, what's behind paganism? What's behind the beliefs of these spirits and these, these, uh, the spirits that you've got to make sacrifices to and you've got to appease somehow? Well, that would be demon activity. What we know about this region is that this would have been a dark region, spiritually speaking. This would have been a region that was more rooted in paganism than truth. This would have been a region that was maybe more attuned with some spiritual stuff going on. And what's interesting, I mean, you could look at verse 10 just to show you something. The demons, when they're actually talking to Jesus, they're begging him not to be sent out of the country. And some have speculated that it might be that the demons wanted to stay there because they had had their roots there for a long time. They'd had a stronghold, you might say, in that region, and they don't want to be sent out. I think it's fascinating. You think about what's happening here. Jesus is heading right into a dark, dark region, a spiritually bankrupt region. He's going to a region that you might say is infested with demons that is for a long time been infected by the presence of demonic activity jesus is not afraid he calms a storm and he's heading right over to the land of the garrisons where this was walking straight into the darkness i think this is an important thing to think about church this is what We've been called to do, has it not been our calling also, to go into all nations, to make disciples of all nations, not just the nations we like, not just the ones that are safe, but to all nations. That the heartbeat of Jesus is to go to a place where there is no access to truth. That the heart of Jesus is not afraid of darkness, and he wants to go to places that have not yet heard the truth. I want to ask you, do you share Jesus' heart in this way? Do you have the same boldness as him to enter such a place that is dark and scary? Sometimes, isn't it true, if we're honest, that we want to avoid those places at all costs? That we value our safety? And in the name of being responsible, we want to avoid any place that might be dark? I would even ask parents to consider what they teach their kids do we have such a high view of Jesus that we are not afraid of the darkness? We know Jesus is bigger and stronger than the darkness. Or are we teaching our own children, by our example, to avoid scary and dangerous things? The Christian church for centuries has been marching on the nations, going to places where people otherwise would stay away. It has been bringing the gospel to the darkest of places. I had a friend who uh, got, a, uh, got a, a vision in his own heart, uh, in his own mind, to go to uh, the place that he felt was the least reached place. It was his desire. It wasn't that anyone pushed him into it. After learning the scriptures and learning the heart of God and even learning from our, our Savior himself, it was his own desire to look at all the nations and all the people groups and to ask the question, what's the darkest one? Where is the, the least amount of truth? Because that's where I want to go. 
And I just want to say, I think that's an imitation of the Savior, isn't it? That we don't always just make decisions in life based on what's safe, what's easy. That's not the way we live. Christian families and Christian churches, we want to be the kind of people who foster courage, bravery, not timidity, timidity. That's a hard word to say. And fear. We reject safety first living. We have to, right? I mean, if we follow a Savior who went to the cross, who gave up his comfort to die so that sinners who don't deserve it could be saved, we have to reject safety first living, don't we? I mean, if we read the letters of the Apostle Paul who said to live is Christ and to die is gain, then we don't live safety first life. That's cowardice. When we follow a Savior who is willing to give up his comfort and to go into dark places for the sake of the good of those who need him, we don't do that. We don't live safety first. We live for glory first, Christ's glory first, the glory of God first. We live for that, whether it's safe or whether it's dangerous. A few years ago, I don't know if you heard the story, a young man by the name of John Allen Chow decided that he would travel to what he considered to be Satan's last stronghold on earth. I don't know if you heard this, the North Sentinel Island. The North Sentinel Island, by the way, is this place that really has been untouched for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. It's primitive, it's tribal. Anytime that someone has tried to land on that island, they've been quickly murdered by the inhabitants of the island. Well, he thought that he wanted to bring the gospel there. He followed, he wanted to follow the heart of his Savior. Just like it's mentioned here, Jesus going into a dark place, he wanted to go to a dark place as well. And though many people had tried and failed in the past, he wanted to go and bring the truth to these people to bring them the good news. Though no one wanted to anymore, though they were so isolated, he wanted to go and do it. And guess what happened? He got on the island, and after attempting to make contact with them, attempting to give them gifts to demonstrate his desire to love them and care for them, within hours of his time on the island, he was murdered. How do you respond to a story like that? Do you go, oh, he was a failure? Do you go, oh, he was irresponsible? Maybe. This could be true that he was irresponsible. I don't know all the details of how he got there. I do want to point out this, that I think the impulse, the, the inclination to see darkness and to say, I want to go there. I want to be in the place where there is no gospel yet. There is no light, that it's dark. I want to be the light there. I think that's a good Christ-like impulse. And church, I want to call you to that. I don't necessarily want to say we all got to leave our comfortable homes in America. That's not what I'm saying. But I do want to say that there are no dark places so dark that Christians ought to avoid at all costs. We got to be fearless like our Savior. There are some people that we might be tempted to abandon, to avoid, to leave to themselves because we feel that they're so bad or they're so far gone that there's nothing we could ever do to save them. And perhaps we would never articulate it. We say, well, Jesus won't save them. Or maybe worse, Jesus can't save them. 
Jesus didn't think that way. We want to be bold and courageous Christians, fearless, not valuing our lives so highly that we're unwilling to be uncomfortable for the sake of his gospel. You know, there's something worse than death, isn't there? There's something worse than death. Wouldn't it be worse uh, than death to live a wasted life, a life so concerned of that it, that it wants to be so comfortable and want to make everything so convenient that you never take any risks, you live a life of bubble wrap, you, you value safety above faithfulness, comfort over obedience, convenience over sacrifice, and so we never enter the places of darkness, we never talk to the people who are risky, we never do anything that might make us inconvenienced. I want us to be like Jesus. I want to be praying, and I would invite you to be praying that God would raise up from among us people who are fearless. <laughs> They're confident in their Savior. They're willing to go to the darkest of places, and we as a church support them in that. Maybe it's someone who's even here this morning. You understand Jesus' heart for the people who are lost, and you want to go. And I pray that our church would be able to be behind you and pray with you and even send you, Lord willing, to those places. This is the mission that Jesus is on. That's all from verse 1. <laughs> Let's look at the man, or the maniac, we're going to call him. That's the, that's the mission. Now we're looking at the maniac. Jesus steps out of the boat. He's in this dark place called the Gerasenes of the Decapolis. Verse 2, and when they had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. It was common in those days to, to build your, your graves into the sides of mountains. You would already have kind of caverns carved out of the hills there. And across the Sea of Galilee, there would have been these hills, rocky kind of hills that you would already have kind of pre-made tombs. This is where the man was. Uh, he's living here in the tombs, we get. And immediately, as Jesus steps out of the boat, we don't get even the, so far as seeing whether the disciples step out of the boat, but Jesus steps out of the boat, and this man runs toward him to meet him. This guy's been haunting these tombs. Let's kind of see how the text describes him. Uh, in Matthew, he mentions a second man, but Mark goes into much more detail, and he's focusing on the main guy, the guy who's the main point of the story, Apparently, he's the most prominent character here, and Mark describes him to us. He's living among the tombs. This could indicate a couple things. This could indicate that the presence of demons uh, taking over him gave him an obsession with death, a morbid obsession with darkness. It could also indicate that society has so banished him that now this is the only place he's free to roam. Uh, we, we, we learn uh, from verses 3 and 4 that he has a kind of superhuman strength. He cannot be bound. Apparently, uh, from the text, we see that people had tried to bind him. They tried to shackle him. But again and again, uh, he just destroys the chains that are going around him. Those words that are describing how he breaks the chains indicate the idea of tearing them apart or smashing them into pieces. He's a maniac with overwhelming strength that as soon as he's bound, he sets to tearing off the shackles, pounding them against the stone until he smashes them to the point he can get his hands free. He, in verse 5, he's experiencing uncontrollable rage every night 
And every day he's roaming the area. The text says he's always crying out. You wonder if the herdsmen could hear him from a distance, screaming throughout the day and throughout the night, shrieks. Uh, This would be a, a terrifying sound. In addition to that, he's cutting himself with stones. Uh, This could be the demon so influencing him, just as we mentioned last week, that demons love to destroy God's creation, and so the demonic influence is moving him to self-harm. He's cutting himself repeatedly. He would have been an absolute mess. Luke includes the detail that he's naked, which could also indicate another form of perversion as he's refusing to clothe himself. As Jesus steps out of the boat, He doesn't flinch as the man charges him. This man must have been absolutely hideous, grotesque, probably open wounds all over his body, a bloody mess, scabbing up here and there. His stench is probably foul. Jesus gets up. This is the man Jesus is going to encounter. I just love thinking about this reality. Jesus loves this man. Would you and I love this man? Jesus has compassion on this man. Would you and I have compassion on a man like this? I think it's important for us to remember that this man is a stunning, stark portrait of what humanity is like without Jesus. You guys remember what Ephesians 2 says, right? About the nature of man before grace has so transformed us? Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that we're following the powers of this world, even Satan himself. We were enslaved to sin. This man is a picture of someone so enslaved to the sin of his own heart, he is also ruled and dominated by demons. He cannot fix himself. He cannot fix his problems. Uh, His problem is so deep, so great, so utterly outside of his control. He is experiencing the agony of hopelessness, the misery of being enslaved to an evil beyond his control. And really, friends, that's what all humanity is like before Jesus sets us free. Maybe not to the same degree as this, but spiritually speaking, that we are all enslaved to sin, that we are all dominated by sin in a way that we cannot control. If you're not a Christian this morning, I'm so thankful that you're here. And you're welcome to come back every Sunday from here on out. You're welcome here. I have a question for you. Do you know the agony of hopelessness? You ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced the misery of being enslaved to an evil beyond your control? Let me tell you, every Christian in this room knows that feeling. Right? The reason we came to Christ is by the grace of God, He revealed to us our desperate condition apart from His grace. We were in the agony of hopelessness. We were in the misery of being enslaved to sin that we could not eradicate from our lives. And Jesus, by his grace and by his power, set us free. He provided the hope of deliverance 
the hope of salvation, the hope that our sins could be forgiven. He and he alone freed us from the slavery uh, to our own wickedness, to our own sin, just as he will do to this man. And if you are not a Christian, I would invite you to turn from your sin to this Savior, Jesus Christ, and experience the joy of knowing that life is no longer hopeless, your sins will no longer dominate you in the way they have before, and that Jesus has the free power to set you absolutely and completely free. The maniac is enslaved. The demoniac is dominated by demons. He is one of the most stunning portraits of a man helpless in the whole scriptures, and yet he is redeemed. And thus any of us could be redeemed as well. Let's look at the meeting. Let's see what happens. Look at verse 7. Crying out with a loud voice. Actually, we'll go back to verse 6. He saw Jesus from afar. He ran. So he's running toward Jesus. Verse 7, he crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. You're with the disciples. You just got off the boat. It's been a long night on that stormy sea, and you're about to step out of the boat, and then you see this ghastly figure charging at you. That's a terrifying thing. I'm getting back in the boat, okay? I'm, I'm braving the storm again. Um, this is, this is a, a, a strange event that they were in no way prepared for. This man's charging them. It says he falls down before him. He, verse 7, cries out with a loud voice. He's screaming at him at the top of his lungs. There's some all kinds of odd features here. Think about this. He runs up to Jesus, and then he basically says, leave me alone, Jesus. It's like pushing someone and then say, hey, why are you starting to pick a fight? Come on. I mean, the, the demon, clearly, there's a, this man is tormented. He's conflicted. Uh, then there's this interchange where, uh, don't, don't torment me, that the demons cry out. And, and Jesus had been saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Look at verse 9. Jesus then asks him, what's your name? It's just an interesting question, indicating that demons have names. The demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion. A legion is a, a Roman military unit that could be as big as 6,000 soldiers. Legion. If the name Legion indicates the number of demons this man has in his life, this man is like a beehive of demons. If you were to put on your spiritual goggles and look at this man, he would be swarmed with demons inhabiting him, around him, dominating him. And if you look at the grammar, I mean, if you read through this slowly, the grammar's bizarre, indicating something odd is going on here. My name, that's singular, is legion, for we, that's plural, are many. You see that? Uh, uh, my name and we, I mean, he's mixing singulars and plurals all over the place. Look at verse 10. And he, that's singular, begged him, that's singular, not to send them, that's plural, out of the country. What is this indicating? This indicating there's probably a ranking demon there that's inhabiting the man that is over all the rest of the demons. And so one is speaking on behalf of all the rest. So this man is dominated by thousands of demons that have taken him over. This is quite a bulwark of spiritual forces under Satan's army. This is a formidable foe. Thousands of demons. 
Saul here. And Jesus appears. I remember once uh, when I was a youth pastor in Simi Valley, I'd finished preaching on a Wednesday night, and I went out to the uh, parking lot, and I was the last person there, kind of cleaning some stuff up. And uh, there was a person, a car there that I didn't recognize. So I walked up to the car, and I was just going to talk to him a little bit. And I was going to ask him to leave before I left, just to make sure nothing weird was happening. And as I walked up to him, he rolled down his window, and as he did, another car pulled in, and then a third car pulled in, and they kind of surrounded me a little bit. Uh, in the moment, I was scared. I was the only one there. I was the only one there. You know, it happened that these guys were actually nice, and they were choosing their uh, they were choosing our parking lot as a place for them to all meet up. And I ended up sharing the gospel with them, got one guy a Bible, and uh, all was good. But for a moment there, I was a little bit scared. As this car pulled up and this car pulled up, I realized I'm outnumbered. These cars are full of people, and if they were to want to do something right now, I might have to run. Because um, if I'm going to try to put up a fight, they're going to beat me up. I wasn't thinking all those things, but that was kind of, you know... You know, looking back on the story, that's probably what would have happened. But here, one man, Jesus, steps out of the boat, and there are thousands of demons, you could imagine the picture, surrounding him, looking at him. They know who he is. You see it in the text. You're Jesus, the Son of God. They know him by name. And they are terrified of him, the one man. Why is that? They know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus has far more authority and power than all of them combined. And so what do they do? They begin to beg Jesus. I love just thinking about this. Jesus is so strong, so powerful, has such authority that thousands of demons are begging for their lives before him. I mean, let's raise our view of Jesus. Do any of us need to repent of a weakling Jesus that we've got in our minds? Cast that aside. We serve King Jesus, who is stronger than all the demons combined. And with his word, he can tell them what to do. And so these thousands of demons are now on their knees, I'm imagining, begging, begging Jesus, oh, please send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. I don't know why they want to go into the pigs. There's a lot of speculation. The text doesn't quite say. Some have said maybe that's because demons prefer being in a body rather than floating around in the air. I don't know if that's true, but they're begging to be in the pigs. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. So Jesus gave them permission. <laughs> demons can't do a single thing without the permission of Jesus. That's the authority that Jesus has. They beg, and Jesus says, all right, I'll give you permission. You can go into the pigs. I'm immediately reminded of Job, chapter 1, when I, when I read this. If you're familiar with Job, chapter 1, you remember Satan comes up to, to God in the heavenly council, and, and, and Satan's uh, talking about Job. They're talking about him, and, and Satan says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house? And all that he does in every side. In other words, Satan thinks that the only reason that Job is worshiping God is because God has made his life so safe and so prosperous and so good. But, but Job would curse God if all those things were removed. And so you know what God does? God allows Satan to destroy all of Job's stuff, but not touch him. You see that? 
In other words, God draws the line. You may do this, but not this. This is what's happening here. Here's a picture of Jesus giving leeway to demons, saying you can go this far, but not here. You have permission to go into the pigs, demons. Uh, that means they didn't have permission to do other things. They could do that. They go into the pigs. It's Jesus, again, demonstrating his power and authority over the demonic realm. What happens? What do the demons do? They head over to the pigs. There's 2,000 of them on the hillside, and immediately these pigs, infested now with demons, run off the side of the hillside. If you're a herdsman and you're watching this happen, you're going, uh, uh, what's going on? These are my pigs. I mean, this is your, this is your, uh, li- this is your livelihood. These are your pigs. This is your money. You're watching this. It's like one falls off. You're like, okay, I could handle that. Uh, another goes, and like all the pigs are going. What are we going to do? You're not going to pull these things out of the sea. And so the pigs just start charging off the, the, down the land, off the bank, into the water. And pigs don't swim. Don't know if you knew that. And they just sink right to the bottom, and they all die. Why did the demons do that? I think they did it because the demons were doing to the pigs what they wanted to do to the man. They are a destroying horde of evil forces that they want to destroy God's creation. And so they were destroying the man, and now they're going to destroy the pigs. And in destroying the pigs, they destroy the livelihoods of many people who owned those pigs. Why did Jesus give them permission, though? Why did Jesus allow them to destroy them? I think there's probably two reasons. One is Jesus is, in fact, waiting for the proper time of judgment that has not yet come. Jesus will judge all demons permanently in the future, but not yet. Now's not the time. But secondly... What I think Jesus is doing by allowing the demons to go into the pigs and allowing the demons to create such a big, grandiose event with all the pigs falling off into the sea, he's creating an event that's demonstrated, that's obvious, that's visible, that's tangible. In other words, if he just said, demons, you're you're, you're cast out, and the pigs, nothing happened with them, the herdsmen probably wouldn't have cared too much. They would have been, oh, thank you for helping this guy. But they probably wouldn't have recognized the authority that Jesus was demonstrating as he commanded all these demons to leave. But they were forced to deal with the demonic reality, and they were forced to consider the power of Jesus when they realized that the demons that had taken this guy were now in the pigs, and the pigs were destroyed. It was so obvious right in front of them, they had to deal with the reality. Jesus is demonstrating power. He didn't just you know, use hypnotism and fix this guy's problem. No, it was demons, and he cast them out, and he fixed the problem by his authority over the demonic evil that this man was plagued by. In other words, he's making it tangible. He's making his power visible. He's putting it on display. He wants people to see his authority over demons. Again, how's your view of Jesus? How big is your view of Jesus? How powerful is the Jesus you serve, is the Jesus you believe in, the Jesus you hold in your mind and in your heart, does he have this authority to save these kinds of people? Because these kinds of people still exist. By his word, Jesus overthrows a demon army, delivers a man who was enslaved to evil forces, and Jesus has power to do this in your life, and in mine. Jesus has the power to live a sinless life. Read the rest of the New Testament. That's what he does. 
Jesus has the power to die a substitutionary death, that is, a death that pays sin's penalty for all who believe in him. Jesus has the power to then conquer death, rising from the dead in the resurrection. Jesus has the power to deliver all those who trust in him from the powers of darkness. And if you have not come to him, let me invite you to come to Jesus Christ. Come by faith. Embrace him as your Lord. Come like a child, humbled, and say, I can't save myself. I can't protect myself, Jesus. I need you. I trust you. You have more authority than all the demons in the universe. You are my only hope. Come to Jesus. Let's look at the marvel. That is, let's look at the results. Let's look at what happens there. The herdsmen flee, verse 14. They go back to the city and the country. They're telling everyone what happened. The people come to see what it was that happened, verse 14. And they came to Jesus. And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They weren't thankful. They weren't glad to have this guy fixed. It wasn't gratitude that was motivating them to come to Jesus. They were afraid. It actually kind of reminds us of what happened when Jesus calmed the sea. Because after Jesus calmed the sea, what did the disciples do? They were greatly afraid. And now this stunning demonstration of power over the demonic realm is not something that these people take comfort in. It's something that terrifies them to the point that they're so afraid they, 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 they want him to leave, verse 17. Uh, we don't want you here. Uh, you, you ruined our, our pigs. <laughs> you, you, you represent a power that's beyond our control. We, we, you're, you, we can't deal with this. We, we don't know how to categorize you, Jesus. Could you leave? Fascinating. It says they're begging him to leave. And what does Jesus do? Starts getting back in the boat. Okay starts getting back in the boat. The man there, it says, is clothed and in his right mind. Um, this would be like waking up after a horrible nightmare. Could you imagine? Waking up after this, the demons are finally all gone. You have clarity of mind. You're sitting there naked. You're sitting there in a stench. You're sitting there utterly embarrassed over who you've become. And the fact that someone clothed them, I don't know if it was Jesus. I don't know if it was the herdsmen. I don't know if it was the disciples who clothed them. But someone tenderly, gently got him, uh, got him some clothing, covered up uh, the, the shameful cuts and scars that were all over his body, cleaned him up, and there he is sitting in his right mind. And of course, what does he begin to do? He starts begging too. Wouldn't you do the same thing? Jesus, take me with you. I don't want to go home. I mean, you could imagine whatever got him to the point where he's an outcast of society, living among the tombs, demon-possessed, whatever got him there, it all probably started where he grew up. And this town that he has to go back to is where he grew up. And I would imagine this would be the last thing he wants to do. That's where all the memories are. That's where all the trauma happened. He doesn't want to go back there. He's begging Jesus, let me go with you. You know what's fascinating about this text? You read it closely. You start noticing words that come up again and again. Begged is a word that is repeated. 
you notice that the demons begged. Did you catch that? The demons begged Jesus, what? That they would not send him out of the country, that they would send him to the pigs instead. What did Jesus do? He gave them what they wanted. The herdsmen beg. The herdsmen beg as well. What are they begging? They're begging that Jesus would leave. And the man begs. The demons got what they wanted. The herdsmen got what they wanted. The man starts begging. Jesus doesn't give him what he wants. Mark that, Christian. Not always the best thing for you to get what you want. He's begging Jesus, let me go with you. And, and probably he's thinking, this is the best thing for me. That if I need you near me, Jesus, I don't want to go back to what I was. I want to follow you closely. I want to walk with you. And we would all say, that's a good thing to want to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I got something else for you. I want you to go home. I can imagine his heart sinking, tears beginning to well up in his eyes. He wants to just be with Jesus, the one who saved him, the one who delivered him. And Jesus says, no, uh, go home, verse 19. I'm not going to let you come with me. I got something else for you. Just go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus is going to use this man in a way that he never would have dreamed of in his life. Jesus is going to use him, and it's not by giving him what he wanted. It's by calling him to something that he never expected he'd be called to do. Friends, sometimes we want something so badly. We ask Jesus so desperately for it. We pray about it. We beg him for it, and the answer is no. And why? It's because Jesus has other plans for us. Go home to your friends. Why, why does Jesus want this? Why does he want him to go home? And, and by the way, if you've been with us all along the, the journey so far through the Gospel of Mark, you know what's happened when Jesus has healed other people, right? What does Jesus tell them to do? Shh, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone yet. I don't want you to go spread around. Not this guy. You go tell everyone. Go back home, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your community, I want everyone to know what I have done for you. Why is it? I think it has to do with the fact that this is an unreached area. This is a place that they have not heard much about Jesus. This is a place that needs the, the message of Jesus and the power of Jesus to start spreading through there. This is a new region. And so this man ends up being one of the first missionaries to this region, sent by Jesus to a place that no one had yet gone, giving them the message of the power of Jesus. What an amazing privilege this man has to be the first voice to speak of the power of Jesus in this region. Amazing. Go and tell it all. Tell the family that abandoned you. Tell the people that were trying to bind you. Tell them all. I think the other reason that he tells them to go back home is because they all would have known him. And they would have seen the transformation. And if Jesus just brought him along with the rest of the disciples, no one would have known who this guy was. They didn't know the story of his transformation. But going home, he's much more powerful as a testimony to the wonder uh, and power and grace of God. Go home because your life is a marvel to the people that you're going to be with. Your life is going to testify to the power that Jesus has to save and transform. Friends, let's conclude with this. No one is hopeless before King Jesus. No, Jesus can't be stopped. Jesus cannot be stopped. He's strong to save. 
And from this day up till today, he has been pursuing those whom he's called to himself. And no one will stop him. And he will enlist his people to do the work for him, even the people that you would think are utterly hopeless, utterly useless, and couldn't possibly give anything to Jesus in terms of their service. But Jesus enlists them into the ministry that he has. He's not going to be stopped, friends. (laughs) Go down through the history of the church. Mark this. No sinners too lost. No transgressors too far gone. No soul is too engulfed in sin. No person is beyond the pale of the power of Jesus to redeem. No amount of demons could so rule a person's heart so as to render Jesus' power useless. Jesus has been saving. He saved this person. He is saving today. He is saving in our world. And we get to be a part of what he's doing. If you need the deliverance that Jesus offers... You come to Jesus today. (laughs) The sin that condemns you will be washed away. The demons that oppress you will be banished. The guilt that weighs you down will be like a burden cast away. And even if a thousand of demons or thousands upon thousands were dominating you, they would be no match for Jesus. Can Jesus save you? Absolutely. Can he save anyone? Absolutely. And the scriptures go down from person to person showing that the worst among us can be saved. Saul, who hated the church, becomes Paul, who is the church planner. Church history is filled with them. From Augustine to Luther to Calvin to Spurgeon to Newton, all the way down. Men and women who were lost and enslaved and tormented by sin, redeemed and delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ, and then commissioned to be his servants in the world, and that can be you. And if you were to look around in this room, and if you were to hear the stories of deliverance in this tent, I should say, you would see that Jesus today is a Savior, a Deliverer, and that his abundant grace still today takes people undeserving and lost and saves them. The drug addicts are set free The broken people are restored. The lost are saved, all because of the power of Jesus Christ. This is demonstrated in his authority over these demons. And my hope this morning is that we look afresh at his power and authority, not only over nature, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, but also over demons and over evil itself. Jesus is going to make all things new. Run to him. Trust him. Walk with him. Let's pray. So Lord, we are thankful that you demonstrate your power and authority in this text. We're thankful that you show us that there is no person too far gone, no evil so deeply embedded that you cannot cast out Lord, we are reminded that we cannot help ourselves. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we, like humbled children, come to you, look to you, desire to walk with you by faith, knowing that you are for us a friend and a savior and a powerful deliverer, and that you and you alone can heal us from the hurts 
that overwhelm us. Thank you for these promises that you've given us. We praise you in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.